Thank you for listening to a message from the Bowden Church of Christ. For more information, visit www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. That's www.bowdenchurchofchrist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Bowden Church of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing to you and helps you to serve God and find satisfaction in Him alone. And now, our speaker. Let's take our Bibles to Matthew 25. It's good to see all of you here this morning. Hope our worship has not only been encouraging to you this morning, I, I know that I have been encouraged by it, but that it's honored God. I appreciate everyone who's participated in our worship this morning and the reverence they've put into it. Uh, Jerome with the prayer and Ellis with a song lean. I don't know if you've noticed, but the first part of this year, we've had a lot of young men lead our singing on Sunday morning, and they've done a fantastic job. We appreciate them. And Mike, for your thoughts on the Lord's Supper. Now, we didn't coordinate this, but this morning we're studying Matthew 25. If you'll put up our slide, the parable of the ten virgins. And Mike's thoughts surrounding the Lord's Supper could not go more proper than with a sermon on this subject. The ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1-13. We appreciate Aidan's reading of that. Let's open up our Bibles there. We're going to read the parable once again. And then we're going to dive into a study of it for just a few moments this morning. We've been studying the parables for this is the fourth week now. And we've looked at a number of different parables. We have talked about the parable of the sower. A parable that teaches us that every one of us should have uh, a response to the gospel. And the question is, how will I respond to the gospel? What state is my heart in? We've studied the parable of the friend who was persistent and the principle of persistent prayer. That when you and I pray to God, we not only bring to him our needs, but we do so persistently. We ought to pray like the man who persistently went to his friend, his neighbor. We studied last week the parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable that teaches us that our hearts should be filled with compassion and mercy. And that every person is our neighbor and we should treat them as such. And this morning we will study Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, a parable that teaches us that Jesus is coming back. And we're either ready for that or we're not. Matthew 25, verse 1. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. And at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealer's. And buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came out also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Verse 13. Watch, therefore, 
For you know neither the hour nor the day. And the New American Standard version in which Aiden read from this morning included, You know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man will return. In this parable, Jesus uses, as he does in every parable we've studied, the principle of a, a simple earthly scenario to bring to our attention a strong spiritual truth. The earthly scenario for this parable is that of a wedding feast. Now, you need to remember that the wedding feast of the first century, of course, was much different than the wedding feast of the 21st century. In this time, not only was the wedding feast a drawn-out process, but the wedding feast was something that everyone in town either was invited to or participated in. In the first century, especially in Jewish culture, a young woman and a young man often did not meet one another and fall in love and decide they would be engaged, and then he would drop to one knee and propose as we do today. The marriage of a young man and a young woman was often a family contractual agreement. The family of the young man, the family of the young woman would gather together. They would draw up a contract. In that contract would be included the information about the fact that the bride's family would receive from the husband's family a payment. And they would draw that contract up so that they could be then married. After that, those two would be considered betrothed. If you'll remember in the story of Jesus as a baby, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. They were, as we would necessarily say, engaged. In that betrothal, the young man would go and spend time in his family's home. He would learn a trade. He would build onto the family home a room for them to live in. And he would be waiting until his father gave the approval to go and get his bride. In the time being, the bride would be getting herself ready, preparing for marriage, and she would be gathering up the wedding party around herself. She didn't know when the groom would come to get her, but contractually, by the, contra the contract they signed, they were essentially considered married. That's why Joseph considered to divorce Mary when he found that she was with child, and he said, well, we, we're not husband and wife yet, because they were bound by contract. The bride would pick for her a party, of women to be around her, similar to today. She would pick her wedding party. And they would often in the first century be distinguished as women who had not been married, who were virgins, chaste women, would gather around her at her wedding. That would be her bridal party. The gentleman would also choose his groomsman. That would be a part of his wedding party. And when it was time for the groom to come, he would send the equivalent of his best man to get the bride. The whole wedding party would make their way to the family's home, and they would begin the ceremony, often lasting a week. Imagine how much it is to feed somebody for a night. Imagine feeding everyone for a week. And they would celebrate that wedding for a week. It is in that scenario that we find the parable of the ten virgins. One important detail to include that is mentioned to us in Matthew 25 is that those virgins were waiting for the bridegroom's arrival to be announced by his best man, and they had with them in Matthew 25 and verse 1 lamps. 
The word lamp in Matthew 25 and verse 1 is not a lamp that is described like in Matthew chapter 5 when we shine our light to all the people around us. We don't hide our light underneath a basket. That's not that kind of lamp. The word used here is the same word used when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he looks across the Kidron Valley and out of that northern part of the city, the soldiers come out to come arrest him and they're holding torches. That's the word used here in Matthew 25. This was the equivalent of, I can't remember what it's called. Some of you will get on to me for not remembering. But that little flower they put right here, you know, when you go to a wedding. And they, I can't remember. It's pinned there. You'll tell me later. But that flower, that's the equivalent of it. The lamp is. That would distinguish the women who were a part of the bridal party apart from everyone else in the wedding ceremony. And they would carry these lamps, this piece of wood that would have a cloth wrapped around the top. That cloth would be tied on the top of the wood. It would be dipped and soaked in oil. And that would serve as a lamp. It is on that scenario that Jesus tells us that the bridegroom is coming and we must be prepared. Now, if you compare this with Matthew chapter 9, you'll find that Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom. He is the one coming back to receive his people, the church, to present them to God. And he uses the parable to teach us that we need to be prepared because we know neither the day nor the hour. And so we have the parable... Of the ten virgins. If you'll put up our first slide, Bailey. Let's talk about three important lessons we learn from the parable of the ten virgins. And I would draw your attention first to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. In our first point, I want to emphasize to you this, this morning. That this parable teaches you and I. Jesus is coming back. Now, if you look in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, you will find that Jesus has come once and will come again. In fact, it is over in Hebrews chapter 9 that we're told about what will happen when Jesus comes back. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, the very next verse says, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Hebrews 9, 28. Jesus came one time to earth. We have the record of that in the New Testament. And Hebrews 9.27 says that either Jesus will come back or you and I will meet death before he comes back. We must know that at the end of our life, there is not only a reservation. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed once for man to die. It is appointed once for man to die. Put up verse 27 for us, Mr. Bailey. Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed once for man to die. I want you to understand this morning that there is a reservation for your death. None of us can avoid it. I mean, millions upon billions of dollars are thrown into the medical industry to try to delay it. We do everything, to, I, I, everything we can to try to prevent it. But the Bible says you and I will by no means miss out on the fact that we will die. There is a reservation. That reservation will be upheld to the termination of our life. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed once for man to die. Our life will be terminated. And after the reservation of our termination... Just to fit with the words, there is an evaluation. There you go, three words to remember it. Hebrews 9, 27. 
There is a reservation for our termination which will follow an evaluation. It is appointed once for man to die. After that comes the judgment. You and I will either live to see Jesus come back or we will die before he does and we'll enter into judgment. Now let's go back to our slide, Bailey. The first point is that Jesus will come back. Hebrews 9.28, we talked about that. He came once to deal with sin. The second time he'll come apart from sin unto salvation. He'll receive us unto himself and take us to be with the Lord if we've been found faithful. Jesus will come back. And here's the point that Mike eloquently stated for us in the Lord's Supper. We have no idea when that will happen. Let me take you on a little exploration in your Bible. Take your Bibles to Matthew 24. We won't put these verses on the screen, Bailey. Matthew 24. I want to show you how many times this is brought up in the Scriptures. Jesus will come back, but you and I do not know when that will happen. Matthew 24. Verse 36, I would believe that for years people had a better understanding of this principle than we do now. Because, for instance, before the times of cell phones, before the time of landlines, if someone was going to come visit you and they said, we'll be there on Tuesday, that very well could be 6 a.m. to midnight. You don't know when they're coming. Today, if you're like me, I have this device in my pocket. And if my family's coming to visit me, I'll call them a couple of times. And now they've made these convenient little apps. I can track where they are. My dad refuses to, to get it. I got my mom, but dad won't do it. He, he don't want me to track him. Okay? I said, I don't care if you know where I'm at. He don't want me to know where he's at. Okay? But you could track them. I know the moment that they're going to arrive at my home. We've kind of lost the mystic wonder of the unexpected, because we want everything to be planned and expected today. Matthew 24, verse 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Matthew 24, 44. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Matthew 24, verse 50. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know. Matthew 25, verse 13. Watch therefore you know neither the Day nor the hour. Acts chapter 1 and verse 7. They wanted to know when Jesus would restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus said in Acts 1 and verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And finally, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. A very important passage for the coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. You yourselves are fully aware 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Jesus is coming back and we have no idea when. The parable of the ten virgins tells us that Jesus, the bridegroom, will come back. And it'll be at a day and an hour you don't expect. Some people look at Matthew 25 and say it's going to be midnight. Because they were asleep at midnight when he came back. I don't know. But if you've ever gotten woken up at midnight, I don't know about your house. Some of you are awake at midnight. Some of you are about to wake up at midnight. So everybody's different. But I don't know if you've ever been woken up suddenly at midnight. You forget who you are and where you are and where you possibly were even born. You forget everything. You don't know anything about where you are. At midnight, what's more unexpected than being woken up in the middle of the night by something sudden? Jesus is coming back. We do not know when. The second lesson that we learn from this parable is that once shut, the door is shut. Once shut, the door is shut. In Luke 16, the rich man in the story of the rich man of Lazarus wanted to go back and tell his brothers, but for him, the door had been shut. David wanted his son to come back to him, but he knew he couldn't because for his son, the door had been shut. And, and Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says there's a reservation for our termination, which leads to the evaluation in that when we die, the door will be shut and it will not be opened again. No start over, no redo. The time you have is the time you have. And when the door is shut, the door will be shut. The parable of the ten virgins tells me that Jesus is coming back, and I don't know when that will happen, but when he comes back, the door will be shut, and once it is shut, it is shut. And in that parable, there are two groups of people. There are those who are wise. And if you'll remember, we've studied the book of Proverbs. We have talked about wisdom, what wisdom is. Wisdom is experience that I learn to use my knowledge in. Wisdom is applied knowledge. Wisdom is understanding the framework and the cobweb of the world and working in it to make the best scenario come. The book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom. Those who are wise take what they know and they act upon what they know. There are those who are wise in this story and the wise in Matthew 25 went into the door while it was open. And then there are those who are foolish, who know something but fail to do anything, who are aware but do not act, or who have ignorantly avoided the scenario altogether. And the foolish were cast away. Three lessons I learned from the ten virgins. Number one, Jesus is coming back and I don't know when. Number two, when he comes back, he's shutting the door. And once the door is shut, the door is shut. Number three, the wise will enter, the foolish will be cast away. So let me ask you a question. And let's make a little application here as we draw the lesson to a close. The parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Or as we have described it these last four weeks, Jesus takes a spiritual principle, throws it down next to a story, we pick it up and find ourselves in it. So may I ask you this morning, where are you 
in the parable of the ten virgins. Or our next slide. Are you wise or are you foolish? The wise are those who have heard and done. The foolish are those who know and fail to do. Maybe the case is tonight that you would look into God's word and you would find that you are not wise or foolish. I hope that you are wise. Let's talk about the foolish for a moment. The foolish in Matthew 25 are those who, according to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19 says that the whole world is under sin. The world in general is in a lost condition. If I understand Matthew 7, the narrow way and the broad way, if I understand Romans 3.23, if I understand 1 John 5.19, that the whole world is under the power of the evil one, if I understand those principles correctly, I can correctly state this morning that the world in general is in a lost condition. And when I look into the Word of God, I find not only that I need a Savior, we need a Savior, I also find what I must do to be saved. Now, it is important because when I turn to the Scriptures and I see that answer, if I haven't done that, that means I'm not ready for the door to be shut. And I have to ask myself, am I ready for that door to be shut? So, let's talk for just a moment about this first principle. I will not be ready, or I would be considered foolish if I am lost. If I'm outside of Christ, I'm not going to be prepared for the door to be shut. I want to draw your attention to three passages. The first one is Acts 16. So Bailey can go ahead and get that pulled up for us. The second one is Acts chapter 2. And the third one is Acts chapter 9, coupled with Acts 22. So don't worry, you don't have to remember that. There's not a test. I'll get back to him in a minute. Acts chapter 16, Paul has preached the gospel to a woman by the name of Lydia who sold purple. She was obviously well off. He and his compadres that are with him are put into prison, locked in stocks by a jailer and beaten. And in the middle of the night, the Bible says in Acts 16, that after a series of events that rendered the jailer to believe that the prisoners had escaped because the doors had been opened by the earthquake, that, that it was his responsibility to keep up with these soldiers. You know, Roman law was, if you're a soldier and you lose your prisoners, you have to suffer the penalty of their, um, uh, of their sentence. You know, you have to go through what they went through. So he would have been killed. And so he takes his sword and he's about to take his own life. And in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 30, we read this. Acts 16 and verse 30. <clears throat> After Paul announced that they were there, in verse 30 it said, He brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? If I want to be ready for the door to be shut, I have to ask that question. What must I do to be saved? And here's the answer. They said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. The thing in which the Philippian jailer is told is that he must believe in the Lord. Now, according to Thayer, the word believe in the New Testament has three components. As it's defined from the Greek language that the New Testament was written in. It means, first, to accept what God says. And I've told this to you before, so if you remember this, it's just a review. Accept what God says, trust what God says, and act in accordance with what God says. That's true belief. Now, belief is not mental assent. I just acknowledge the Lord in my head. No, 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 no. Belief is 
not only accepting what God says, but I trust it. There are many people who accept that God says these things, but they never put their trust in him. We have to trust God. Accept what God says, trust what God says. And there are many people who accept what God says and trust what God says, but they ignore what God says and they don't act on it. We have to act on what God says. And isn't that what you see here in Acts 16? Because in verse 32 it says that the Philippian jailer took Paul and his friends. They spoke the word of the Lord to him. He heard the word of God. And to all who were in his household, he took them the same hour of the night. He washed their wounds. What's washing their wounds? Nothing more than an act of repentance. Who was the one that dealt the blow to these men? Who was the man that beat their backs with a rod? Who's the man that threw them down on a cold, nasty prison and locked their feet in stocks? No other than the Philippian jailer. Washing their wounds is an act of repentance. He's penitent in heart. He washes their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his house. If I understand belief to, to be the way the scriptures outline it, it is accepting what God says, trusting what God says, acting on what God says. This man was preached to, he repented, he was baptized. And if you go down to verse 34, it says that they rejoiced because he had believed in God. What does it mean to believe in God? It means to accept what God says, trust what God says, act on what God says. If you have heard what God says, and if you do not trust it, I encourage you to evaluate it further because there's nothing that can be trusted more. If you trust what God says, but you haven't acted on it, you are in a lost condition. You must act on what God said. Uh, we can look at these other two passages, but I won't spend any more time on this subject here because we've got two more that are very important. But in Acts 2, he tells them to repent and be baptized. And then in Acts chapter 9, Paul's told to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Acting on what God says is precluded by trusting and accepting what God says. It's a belief. It's a penitent spirit. It's a confession of the name of Jesus. It's an obedience to the command to be baptized. It is doing what God has said. Not to save myself, but to contact the blood of Jesus in submission to him. And if I have not done that, I am outside of Christ. And the scriptures tell me I must be ready for the door to be shut. Matthew 25. Point number two. I'm outside of Christ if I'm lost and I'm not ready for the door to be shut. But number two, I'm outside of Christ if I'm lost, not ready for the door to be shut. Not only if I'm outside of Christ, but if I'm unfaithful to God. I want you to notice what is said here about these people in Matthew 25, the virgins who were unprepared. Some would be foolish because they have not been saved. Others would be foolish because they have been saved. I would encourage you to think that all ten virgins in this story are all people who had professed Christ and had been obedient to him. They all were called. They all had torches in their hands. But some of them were not living a faithful Christian life. You and I, if we are going to be ready for the door to be shut, must be living a faithful Christian life. Matthew 25, 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 2. It is required of a servant that he be found faithful. Revelation 2 and verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death. I must be faithful to God in order to be ready for the door to be shut. There are those who in this story had taken their torches. And here's how I believe this plays out. These bride, bridesmaids, can we call them bridesmaids? Okay. These bridesmaids come and they're getting ready for the wedding and they're waiting and the text even says the bridegroom is delayed. And Mike said it, a, a thousand years is one day to the Lord, right? So the length of time that Jesus said, I'll return, it may seem like a delay to us, but just like yesterday, 
We don't know when the Lord will come back. So they got prepared. I would imagine they wrapped up their torches in cloth, dunked them in oil, and brought their torch and said, I am ready. And the bridegroom delayed, and he delayed. And they had done the initial thing in order to be ready for this wedding. But eventually, that oil began to evaporate off that cloth, and it began to not be as usable and pliable as it was before. Maybe the cloth got hard and crunchy, and maybe it wouldn't burn as well. And so when the bridegroom's coming was announced, they looked back at what they had done long ago, and they tried to light it, and that cloth would burn up for a minute, and then it would smolder out. And so they thought, what are we going to do? We had dunked our cloth in oil. We need more oil. Somebody give me more oil. What, what had happened is they had initially obeyed God, but they thought the initial obedience to God, just professing the name of God and obeying him one time, would get them into heaven regardless of what happened afterwards. And that couldn't be further from the truth because they had not been faithful. They had done something at one point, and they were hoping that the merits of what they had done at one point would draw them into Christ, but they were not faithful to God. They were not prepared. They maybe didn't count the cost. And so they were trying to get into the wedding on the merits of what they had done at one point. Could it be true that we could have obeyed Christ at one point? We could have figuratively dunked our torch in the oil and filled up the cloth with oil. And then we try to light it again when the, when the Lord comes. And the Bible says the trump of God sounds and the voice of the archangel and the clouds will open up and he'll come down. Could it be the case that we could look back and say, well, I did at one point. I went forward years ago. I was baptized X number of years ago. I submitted to the Lord some, but, you know, life gets in the way, right? Things just happen and life gets busy and, and it's not the same as it once was. And I did have a fire, but the fire has been smoldered out. And so now I'm standing there and the Lord is coming. I'm trying to light my torch and it won't light up because I have left the Lord. I will not be prepared for the shutting of the door if I am trying to go off the past things I have done. Confess your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us. His blood will wash us of our sins. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say we got it, or I'm good, or that that I did long ago is okay, no, that's fooling myself. I must be faithful to God today. So some of them tried to maybe go off of what they had done at some point, but their life didn't match Christ. They weren't prepared. Our third is that they were relying on others. Please understand this morning that Paul was willing. He wanted to. In Romans chapter 9 verses 3 and 4. He said, if I could give my salvation to other Jews. If I could lay my salvation on someone else's life. And if they could be faithful and considered uh, righteous before God. I would be willing to be accursed so that they could go to heaven. That is the pinnacle of human Christian love. It is only the new heart that is found in God that can have that kind of love. Even Paul's desire to be willing to be accursed for the sake of another person to go to heaven was not enough to ride on the curtails of his jacket to get in. The Bible is constantly filled with this statement. You find it in Luke chapter 10. What must... I do to be saved. Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Acts 9 and verse 6. You are to be told 
Saul of Tarsus, when you get into Damascus, what you are to do. I understand that the scriptures tell me that no man is justified by works of the law, but it must never pass my mind that every time someone talks about salvation, they're curious about what they must do, and they're given an answer of something they should do. Salvation is not something that happens by osmosis when I walk in the door. There are things God expects of me and to rob myself of my personal responsibility and to try to go in on the reaction or the instruction or the righteousness of someone else is not going to get me in. And these virgins said, we're out of oil. Can we have some of yours now? I know I was taught to share when I was growing up. And so this parable is a little rough, you know, because I'm like, why didn't they just share a little bit of oil? You know, couldn't it just got... But the principle is not about sharing oil, is it? You can't share the blood of Jesus because it's only Jesus that gives that. What must I do? What must we do? What you are to do? I must be under the strong understanding that salvation cannot be borrowed from someone else. Salvation cannot be gained from someone else. And I will not be prepared for the door to be shut if I think because I had a godly mother or a godly father or a godly spouse or raised godly children or was around godly people or sat in the pew next to godly people that God will look at me and say, oh, you are surrounded by godly people. Of course, come in. Now that responsibility is on your shoulders. I will not be ready for the door to be shut unless... I am among the wise who have dealt right with their sin according to what God has said. I will not be ready for the door to be shut if I once obeyed God and I have strayed away. From, I've let the world get its, get its hold on me. And I will not be ready for the door to be shut if I'm going to expect to rely on other people to get into heaven. Are you ready for the door to be shut? Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when. Once the door is shut, it is shut. And when the door is shut, the wise will be drawn in and the foolish will be cast away. So, this morning, as we offer the invitation, where are you? If you need to change it, I encourage you to respond as we stand and sing.